0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Gwendolyn Sasser, author of Russia's War Against Ukraine, published today by Polity. You may ask, do we need another book about the war in Ukraine? Well, yes, we do. Speaking personally, this is the sixth I've read for this podcast, and there are four more pending, but each tells a different and compelling story. Like other recent books, Professor Sasser's new study analyzes three decades of divergence in Russian and Ukrainian politics and society, a developing Russian neo-imperialism, and Western temerity. Unique to this book, however, is the restoration of Crimea to center stage in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The war didn't start in February last year. She writes, Russia's war against Ukraine began with the annexation of Crimea on the 27th of February 2014. This wasn't a one-off return of Russian territory, the peninsula itself has its own exceptional history, and beyond that, she argues, the annexation signalled to secessionists in Donbass that Moscow would have their back. Gwendolyn Sasa directs the Centre for East European and International Studies in Berlin and is a professor at Humboldt University. Before that, she was a professor of comparative politics at Oxford and taught at the Central European University and the London School of Economics. Her 2007 book, The Crimea Question, won the Alec Nov Prize for scholarly work in Russian, Soviet, and post Soviet studies. Gwen, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello. Hi, Tim.
1: Well, let's begin with the origins of this book. Uh, you published in German within eight months of the full scale invasion in, in 22. What made you decide to update and publish in English?
2: Yes, I mean, first of all, when the German publisher CH Back asked me to to write on on the war and on Ukraine and Russia, sort of shortly after the start of the full scale invasion, I thought initially it's a bit of a crazy idea and you're writing it amidst this war. But then I could sense around that time that there was a great demand for answers, for explanations, um, both in politics, but also in particular in the public discourse. So a lot of media interest in those of us who had worked on Ukraine or Russia for a long time. And uh, then I thought I'd do this to try and explain or offer my explanation of something complex. The so wars are complex, but to make it accessible, to make it hopefully understandable and to tell the story of how we got to uh, the full-scale invasion and the actual military detail of each stage since last February is a small part of the book. Anything else wouldn't be possible. And then um around that book there was sort of a generated a fair amount of discussion in in germany and i think it provided a reference point also for discussions for example in schools to understand what was happening and increasingly i was asked in particular also by ukrainian colleagues could this not also be in english and then it becomes more widely accessible and i wanted it and normally i write academically i write in in english mostly Um, So I wanted it to be available um, to uh, a wider group of people and hopefully can also over a year later be uh, part of a discussion that's more international.
1: I mean, there's a lot of competition out there. Did did you always feel confident that you had something particular to say?
2: I think I do, um, and you're right. It's not the only book, and that's a good thing that there's more out there because I think a lot of the issues that um, some of my fellow authors and and, and me are tackling – should have been part of a more mainstream discussion for a long time. So it's good that there is a number of books, and you said they tell different compelling stories, but I think uh, some of the basic lines in these stories, they should not be too different if we really look at what was happening in, in Ukraine and Russia over a longer period of time. Um, I think the format of the books um, vary, and I think um, uh, the idea initially, kind of from, voiced by this German publisher, uh, Back, it's a very short book. It's not. It's based on my academic research over many years, but it is. Uh, it doesn't have any footnotes. It tells, um, hopefully, a, a short and compelling story. And so I think in that particular format, that it doesn't look too uh, probably threatening. If it's a really large uh, book, which I will later on recommend as one of my favorites, nevertheless, um, uh, maybe that is one of the um, different things about it. It's also perhaps different in in that it really starts earlier. Um, My main starting point is uh, around the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So I really want to focus on the run-up to the full-scale invasion into Ukraine last year. And I also think even a title, I was um, very keen on the title, Russia's war against Ukraine. In in German, it's only the war against Ukraine, but now we also added um, Russia prominently in there. And already with the German title, the war against Ukraine, I wanted to highlight last year um, that terminology is really important. And we still often hear, and also hear in the media, the Ukraine war or war in Ukraine. And uh, obviously the Russian narrative is Ukraine crisis. So all of these suggest that this is a war inside Ukraine, and it um, takes uh, both Russia's role in the terminology out of it, and it also, um, with this emphasis on against Ukraine, I wanted to highlight what it is really about. It, it is against the Ukrainian nation and against the Ukrainian state. So ultimately, it's about the destruction of both of these things. And I think, in that sense, hopefully, also the the title sends a message, which um, maybe is a little different from some of the other books.
1: Yeah, as you say, it it is quite a short book. It's a couple of hundred pages, and it has a, a simple structure: a big chapter on Ukraine, then a big chapter on Russia, and then on the war and its potential aftermath. But the Crimea question is threading all the way through it. Did you feel that Crimea, its history and importance were being overlooked?
2: Yes, um, I probably have to say that. And you mentioned the book I wrote on Crimea, which came out of my PhD dissertation. So um, obviously Crimea has has been in in my thoughts for a long time. But indeed, I think it is um, an aspect that is um, neglected both in Telling Ukraine's um, history since 1991, but also going back in back in time, and the uh, Russian colonial narrative of Crimea is is omnipresent. So um, we are often told, and we've often heard sentences like, "Yes, 2014, the occupation and then annexation of Crimea um, uh, was oh, a breach of international law," but then often there's a but. Wasn't it always Russian? And then we have 1783 in, in our heads when the Russian Empire um, uh, occupies uh, Crimea um, under Catherine. Um, and that is obviously not the beginning of the story. And and so I think also in our own thinking in, in the West, it's not differentiated enough. And there is one strong colonial claim to uh, Crimea. Uh, voiced again and again by russia but the history is much more complex and for example the crimean Tatars don't um really figure in in i think most maybe public perceptions of crimea so we know too little about it um i'm not suggesting here that uh, we should calculate sort of how many years one empire or one group uh, ruled in in one territory so the only baseline is uh, crimea is part of the internationally recognized um Ukrainian state, and that's where it belongs. But nevertheless, the a more complex history is, is important to understand, um, and also to to counter some of these simplistic claims that because there are Russians or Russian speakers living in Crimea, it, it should be part of Crimea, or because uh, part of Russia, or because Khrushchev, apparently it's not that easy, but it's often told like that, gave away Crimea in 1954, um, it just happens to be in Ukraine now, and that's not where it belongs. So these are kind of myths, Soviet-Russian myths, that need to be uh, deconstructed and understood pro- properly. And Crimea also paid, played an important role after 1991, so after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, because it was the main territorial challenge, and um, the, the Ukrainian state had to integrate this region, which historically is is, is, is different from from uh, many other regions in Ukraine. But it did manage to do that, and it managed it through a negotiation process between Kiev and Simferopol, the capital of Crimea. Um, and there's a number of factors around that, but that, that story is also important because it highlights that by the time, really, the Ukrainian constitution is finalized in 96, and then there's a Crimean constitution in 98, uh, politically, that issue has been was settled, and then Crimea was politically part of the southeast of Ukraine, and it was in no way um, uh, different in terms of its political orientation. So that also shows that um, the, the Russian story of there was mobilization in 2014 to in Crimea to join Russia, that is simply not the case. And so we need to, I think, go back both to the early 90s to see there were demands then to change the status or to um, give Crimea a particular status. That was managed politically. But after that, um, it was not inside Ukraine uh, an issue of wanting to join uh, Russia or wanting to uh, change the status of Crimea. So I think again, there is important to to get the facts right and the chronology right to to not sort of tap into these these arguments that apparently, because there was a majority of Russians and Russian speakers, they they wanted to be part of, of the Russian Federation. That's not simply not the case.
1: Potentially, I'm not alone here. Uh, that until I read your book, I knew next to nothing about the history of the Crimean Tatars. They clearly play no part in the Russian national story, as you just uh, described it. There is this the same in Ukraine. You, as you point out in the book, and you just said now, Crimea played an important part in the establishment of Ukrainian democracy in its early days. But d- d- does it play a part in terms of the Ukrainian national story and Ukrainian national consciousness, and do you think it's important that Ukraine's new defense minister is a Crimean Tatar himself?
2: Yes, um so the Crimean Tatars and Crimea is is very much part of um uh, Ukrainian history and also historiography. And it's obviously difficult to say there's one national history and history is written in different different ways, but definitely um uh, Crimea um as part of the Ukrainian state is also part of um, the Ukrainian um, history, how it's um, how it's told and how it's written. And again, that is not a, a completely linear history. And if we go back into um, the uh, 15th century, for example, the Crimean Tatar Khanate was an empire in its own right, and it reached beyond Crimea, so it also included territories which are part of other regions of southern Ukraine today. So And then it became uh, a part of the Ottoman Empire. So it's a, it's a complex history, but that is, um, well, true of most histories, um, but also in particular here, a country like Ukraine that has been shaped by many different empires over time. Uh, and that is the history that needs to be uh, told. And that is being told, and it's being told in, in Ukraine. Um, and the Crimean Tatars, who only returned from the places they were deported to under Stalin, he um, invented the accusation that that all cooperated with the, with the Germans during the Second World War, which is also not uh, factually correct. He deported the entire people to Central Asia mostly, partly also to Russia. And they were only able to and allowed to return um, in the late Gorbachev period and then in particular after 1991, so when Ukraine was already independent and they or their descendants uh, returned en masse. So around 250,000 people returned to a relatively small region like Crimea. So this um, made for also political, economic, social tensions in Crimea and was part of this process, I briefly described, of a real challenge to the Ukrainian state just because of also the logistics, but also the historical claims to territory. Because in that time uh, during deportation, Crimea really um, became, for the Crimean Tartars, um, that this is the quintessential homeland and they are the indigenous people of Crimea. There's two other smaller um, peoples that also have the claim that they're in indigenous peoples, but they are the, the biggest group today. And they identified very clearly with the Ukrainian state, supported um, Ukrainian the Ukrainians with transition process, the political economic reforms and so on, But they also always um, claimed a particular status and so while their loyalty to the ukrainian state was never in doubt because for them always historically anything coming out of moscow that was um where the threat was so they identified quickly with the ukrainian state also politically uh, but their status that the one they claimed in particular this indigenous status they were only given um by law in 2021, so already after Russia had occupied and annexed um, Crimea. So that shows that while the status of an indigenous people in general was embodied earlier in the Ukrainian constitution and law, actually giving them officially that status took a long time and happened only in 2021. So that also indicates that that wasn't an easy process, because with being an indigenous people, it raises questions about rights. Um, Ownership to territory, property, and so on, um, and and so that highlights that it's it's not without tension. The Crimean Tatars would have always said they're not politically represented enough. They 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 are very vocal, and where they were and are very organized, and they um, uh, they make their claims heard. But that wasn't always an easy relationship with the government in Kiev. But in the overall. Um, historiography, the overall story and political integration. There's no doubt about Crimea's and the Crimean Tatar's place in that um, story.
1: More broadly on Ukraine, you describe the development of what you call civic nationalism and a state characterised by diversity in contrast to Russia. And one of the themes very much in Russian propaganda and among those who oppose western intervention in ukraine is the idea that ukraine ukrainian nationalism is dominated by by the far right you do point out that the big moment for right-wing nationalism was was very brief into 2014 but i wonder whether reading your chapter on on that i wonder whether it was simply co-opted by petro Poroshenko and his army language and faith campaign could you touch on that and also do you think that without Zelensky's insurgency against Poroshenko, Ukraine could have taken an ethno-nationalist turn?
2: Yes, I will. But um, if you allow me, I will just uh, pick up the question I forgot to answer about uh, the, the new defense minister, who is a Crimean Tatar. Maybe I should just briefly um, uh, refer to that part of your question too. Uh, Samuel Mirov. Um, you said, does it matter that he's a Crimean Tatar? And I think it, it does matter. I mean, it does also show that Crimean Tartars occupy very important political positions. And in particular, in the current phase of, of the war, it draws attention to the Crimean Tartars, but also to Crimea and, and the importance also of Crimea and uh, the, the drive to uh, to uh, free uh, Crimea and to um to point really to the the critical role that Crimea is already playing and will play in the the current war since the full-scale invasion and also shows that um, uh, at a very high level how um, the Ukrainian um, state and the people living in it are characterized by diversity. So it really has more symbolic importance at, at this point in time. I mean, you got through to this position Um, not through uh, a lot of experience in the defense sector, but he comes from a business background, but he also was the um, chairman of the state property fund. So he attracted investment in particular from the West to to Ukraine. And he also has experience as a negotiator at various stages already during the war, in particular around the grain initiative. And he signals also a new start um, because the outgoing defense minister, not personally, but his ministry was... um, is, is tainted by um, uh, corruption um, scandals around procurement. So it also signals a new start. But the fact that he is a Crimean Tatar, I think, has more particular, uh, has more um, symbolic uh, importance or political importance at the moment. Um, but to your other question, um, yes, I mean the term civic nationalism. What that really suggests, or civic identity, um, uh, this suggests that it's not about a narrow definition of uh, a Ukrainian. Ethnically defined or linguistically defined nation. That, because of what we already talked about, the fact that Ukraine is, is, is its history is characterized by so many different empires. Therefore, the population is diverse. It's a regionally diverse country. Um, different languages are spoken. Obviously, Russian is spoken. That's not the same at all um, as wanting to be part of Russia or being Russia oriented. I think that's one of the main misunderstandings uh, from outside looking at ukraine over many years or decades by now this assumption that because there is um ethnic and linguistic diversity in particular also very um sort a of prominent use of the russian language in in the southeast of ukraine that that goes hand in hand with the political orientation and undermines the ukrainian state and that's not the case and this notion of a civic identity civic nationalism refers to citizenship so to Define yourself as a citizen of a country, and within that, it can be a, a, a much more diverse um, uh, notion of um, the state. Um, you refer to right-wing um, uh, forces, extremist forces. The um, discussion about the Euromaidan, the big mass protest in twenty three, twenty four, um, uh, in sorry, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, really um, is often wrongly discussed from its end uh, when there, were, uh, there was violence in the central square in Kiev, and there were uh, mostly um, uh, male youth and right-wing extremist forces visible in the square in Kiev. But that mass protest started completely differently in the autumn of 2013 and was for several months a mass protest, a peaceful mass protest, and it, the level of violence um, increases when the then-president, Yanukovych, uses force um, against uh, the protesters. And then there's an escalation of violence. And yes, in the final phase, that is what we see. And there are these groups and also new groups forming, right-wing extremist groups, but they have no real political influence. And um, Vladimir Putin tells us all the time that these fascists then ruled um, Kiev. And this is where this idea of the fascist coup comes from with the Euromaidan, Um, but in the interim government that followed in in a very few months into 2014, um, some uh, politicians associated with these groups have positions, but it's an interim period, and as soon as the new election comes along and Petro Poroshenko emerges from these elections, uh, they play no visible role at the national level, and if at all, it's individuals entering parliaments and mostly at local levels, So Ukraine overall, although this idea of kind of right-wing nationalism dominating national politics is something that, again, outside of Ukraine always comes up, but then, I mean, I sit in Germany here at the moment, um, there's a party, a right-wing extremist party in the polls. It leads with like 20, 30 um, more percent um, in regional elections in particular. So in Ukraine, there's nothing of the sort. So it's a a phenomenon that that gets misjudged um, very often. Um, And uh, you're right, Petro Poroshenko, in particular, in his election campaign, the one that then the elections that Zelensky emerged successfully from in 2019, he had misjudged the society that I described already as being much more diverse and and associating Ukraine more with um, the civic notion of the state and the nation. So he misjudged that sentiment. And Zelensky, as a political newcomer, got that sentiment exactly right. And his was an inclusive message, also an inclusive message to uh, the populations in the occupied territories in Donbass and in Crimea. Um, And Poroshenko misjudged it. And with army language faith, he was um, trying to um, cater more to that, to a narrow, um, more ethnically defined image of Ukraine. But having said that, it failed, but also it is not the same as um the more right wing extreme um parties um in ukraine or elsewhere so i wouldn't put poroshenko into into that political camp but his election campaign played with these um more ethnically defined notions of ukraine and and he failed and that i think in in my interpretation is one of the main um reasons why uh, Zelensky um, emerged as the as as the president um from these elections you call it an insurgency i don't i don't know if i would use that word but it's a landslide victory he won that like no other president before him in mean, ukraine had won and i think it's partly it's it's really to do with this um understanding that ukraine is something more diverse i mean he himself spoke russian still during the election campaign and that um, uh, was not the main issue in terms of that it would have prevented him from becoming a president, but maybe it even signaled more of this, um, this openness.
0: slash
1: NBN50 to get 50% off. Well, I mean, coming to a regime that could potentially be described as far-right, uh, you, you joke that political science, quote, suffers from a classification urge, and there has been some discussion about whether late-stage Putinism could even be described as as fascist. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. now September 2023. Well, what do you think? Yep, yeah,
2: first of all, I think it's important not to focus in only on Putin. Clearly he plays a critical role, so I'm not not trying to deny this, but whenever we say something like Putinism or Putin's war, um, it deflects from the fact that this is a system that's been in the making for a long time. In fact, since 1991, or at least since 1993, when the first um, uh Russian constitution after ninety one was was written and was approved, and this was still under president yeltsin so that's the beginnings of a system that is very presidential, has veto rights um, decree powers, and then it gets systematically uh sort of changed that system towards more and more executive power um very um, uh, clear sort of top-down structures. So and, these, and and society is 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 brought along. So also society in authoritarian systems matters and is prepared over a long period of time to not um, question um, uh, those in power. So it's more than that's important to me. It's it's more than Putin himself, and it's also possible that even after Putin, others will will fill that that space. Um, and so it's it's very much based on also elites around Putin, and then elites at the regional level in the country, and dependencies uh, between them, and that's that's an important characteristic of the of the system. And society is basically pacified, and 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 is is going along with it, and has almost no no ways left to. Um, Uh, To really voice opposition. For me, um, you're right. I mean, political scientists often create new terms and try to make their careers with that. And so you end up with a lot of democracies with adjectives in front of it, where you can always say, well, then it's not really democracy if you add adjectives in front of it, if you qualify it. And the same with authoritarianism. If you add a lot of adjectives in front of it, it doesn't necessarily get clearer. Um, uh, yes, I think we can make some also historical comparisons, and there are fascist elements in what we see in Russia today. For me, this the scale of um, sort of democracies to authoritarianism still holds, and I, I think it's it's a very strong authoritarian system. So for me, that term still does everything analytically that I that I uh, need at the moment to explain what's happening in Russia. But Others use the word dictatorship, but then again, for me, the focus is too much on only the person at the top. And um, fascism, yes, some some elements. Um, um, I think we see there too. Some uh, Ukrainians um, have have coined the term uh, uh, Russianism uh, Rushism, to kind of a mixture of fascism and Russia, but I'm not sure those will be the terms that that last. And ultimately. Maybe what we actually describe is is more important than the one term. But analytically, for me, authoritarianism is still useful. In particular, if we think that this is not one um, only one term and one type of system, but that authoritarian systems are also dynamic; they adjust, they have to adjust all the time, um, either to um, fight off challenges or to uh, prevent them even coming up. So. These terms, and also authoritarianism, is nothing static at all. And, and we see them moving all the time. And I think that's those are the elements that I find more important than um, inventing a new label.
1: The final section of the book is about the war and its aftermath. And I was very struck by your views on the German-French brokered Minsk agreements. You write that, quote, the Minsk agreements provided key breathing space wow. and bought time for Ukraine to wiggle its armed forces and forge an international coalition of support against Russia. And this is probably the kindest thing I've seen written about Minsk. Tell us more.
2: Uh, if you just focus on that one sentence, it sounds um, perhaps very, very mild. Um, but I think one needs to have a, a, a more nuanced understanding in there. I, I go on to explain that that is... Um, I mean, if you think about the the effects then of that, um, of those agreements of uh, 2014 and 2015, they were never implemented, they could not be implemented um, because of even the logic inside these agreements, Um, and effectively that is what they did, they bought Ukraine some time and they put the focus on on really um, uh, also building up uh, the Ukrainian uh, military capacity. But I'm not arguing, and that would be utterly wrong to say, and some politicians involved in brokering those agreements say this today, um, and, and including Angela Merkel. So that that's clearly wrong to say that was the intent that that could happen. But I think that was the effect. And I I refrain from too simple criticism of these agreements. I mean, ceasefire agreements are are never perfect they only ever if at all uh, managed first stage in a very long process so uh, but but it's also i think part of the, the 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 historical truth to say there were at the time politically few alternatives and what this these agreements did they did they they reigned in an escalation that would have gone beyond what ukraine could have controlled or fought at the time when the west was simply not united enough to do what it's currently doing. So there was no military support uh, forthcoming. That was obvious. So there were very few other options on the table. So this agreement did what was the only feasible thing at the time, and it it, it stopped at one particular moment or two moments, uh, an escalation that could have gone far beyond what was already obviously terrible. Um, and if we look at, at numbers of, of the dead and, and so on, so it, it, it managed to, um, in that sense, stop escalation and provide one totally imperfect and ultimately impossible way to still uh, Also facilitate a few things that are not unimportant, there were several times humanitarian measures that became possible, those are not unimportant for people on the ground, there were prisoner exchanges that became possible because of this agreement, so none of this is completely. um, uh, sort of just unimportant, but it could never the logic of the agreement. um, favored uh the Russian argument. It could never be implemented because Russia denied it was party to this war, which meant from the very beginning this could not work. But it just in that sense bought bought time and um uh stopped the further escalation at a moment when Ukraine and, and Ukraine's military was under uh under great stress. So in and in a bigger context um and I think my book's very clear on that, the in particular Western policy also towards Russia was completely ambivalent. Um, yes, there was the Minsk Agreement, then there were sanctions uh, already after the annexation of Crimea, um, Smaller sanctions compared to what we now know is possible. But at the same time, the West and also several European countries, among them Germany, allowed Russia a lot of um, leeway through, for example, a project like North Stream. So energy dependencies uh, signaled very clearly to um, the government in, in Moscow that there is political leeway. So we have to look at that whole picture together and then it's not a favourable view at all. But the the actual agreement, I think, um, one can't blame for the whole wider context also of Western um, wrong political choices.
1: Towards the end of the book, I wondered whether you'd give us a clue for how you think the war will end. You you write, quote, whereas Crimea is of great symbolic and significance to Russian elites and society, the war in Donbass was primarily an instrument for Moscow to weaken the Ukrainian state in the longer run. Now, back in February, the not very lamented Prigozhin said that he thought there could be a settlement based on the fact that Crimea was now secured, that Russia had taken twice as much territory in the Donbass as they had before, uh, February 22, and that they had greater security around the Sea of Azov. Do you think there will be a settlement broadly on that basis, or, or or do you think Ukraine needs to see something much more like victory in order to get a settlement?
2: It's a really open question at this point, so it's purely speculation. And while I think at the beginning of the full-scale invasion, even the Ukrainian side put on the table that one could uh, park the Crimea issue, so they wanted to revisit it in fifteen years was the suggestion and um, so that at the very beginning of of the full scale invasion um that they, they signaled there was room for negotiation, but that is completely gone through everything that has happened since last February. and so at the moment, I don't see um, a willingness or a capacity to to negotiate um even on on Crimea. And also, I think, and Russia is aware of that. The um, while Russian society has also accepted it simply as a as a as a fact. It's now Crimea. Now, from their point of view, belongs to to Russia, and that cannot be questioned. Um, it is militarily also an open question. So clearly, the the current um, uh, offensive uh, on the on the Ukrainian side also is targeting and will increasingly try to target supply routes to Crimea. So even militarily, the status of Crimea is by by no means secure anymore. So with that, um, all kinds of different scenarios become possible, and therefore there's absolutely no room for negotiation at the moment. So a lot will depend on what happens militarily and if um, the Ukrainians succeed in uh, and really, putting putting Russia under pressure in Crimea by breaking some of these crucial supply routes, and that is a possibility. And then we're in a very different um, territory for um, any any possible end to this war and negotiations. But it's it's really an open question at the moment.
1: In your discussion about the aftermath of the war, you say something very interesting that the veterans and commanders are likely to play a major role in post-war politics. I guess. You know, the person who comes to mind would be Eisenhower, the equivalent of Eisenhower. And you identify Valerie Zaluzhny, the commander in chief of the armed forces. But I also wonder about the quite politically savvy uh, head of military intelligence guerrilla Gudanov. Could you expand on this?
2: Yes, I was trying sort of to to look ahead a little, which is also difficult. Um, And the question clearly arises. Um, how politics in uh, Ukraine, post-war Ukraine, will look like and um, new political sort of cleavages, fault lines will emerge and and politics will focus on issues related to the war but then, of course, also to uh, link to reconstruction, to recovery Um, And I think it is highly likely that questions not only at the level of um, sort of the military commanders or military intelligence and sort of the the big office uh, holders we we can see already, but that it goes also beyond that, that questions of who did what during the war, who was where in Ukraine or not in Ukraine during um, uh, this period of of the war that, that already obviously lasts since 2014, um, that those become rallying points in politics and and maybe the um, kind of big personalities we see already will be actively involved in politics but maybe it will also be others um, maybe less prominent at the moment but with the same this type of of an argument that um, basically whoever is in government and opposition that this will be shaped by um, these dynamics of who did what during the war and 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 that is um also a prospect that's hard to already foresee or discuss in terms of is that um furthering the process of of reforms or will it also uh split parts of societies and, in 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 other ways so that's an an open question um but while i'm overall not at all worried or concerned about the the political drive the orientation Ukrainian society is highly mobilized now. So during the war, of course, military and civil resistance, um, and they know exactly where they want Ukraine to be as a democratic state in Europe, in the EU. But nevertheless, the internal dynamics can, can become quite complex, and the fact that individuals who were either prominent um, in, in military positions during the war or that wider issue will play a part. And um, what that exactly means, we can't can't foresee. But often this question comes up, so where is political opposition going to come from again or how will politics look like? So these issues will will play a big role in that, I think.
1: To finish, and because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guest to recommend to one broadly from her field and one personal choice. So, Gwen, what have you chosen?
2: Broadly from my field, I've, I've chosen Sahih Plokhi, Frontline Essays on Ukraine's Past and Present. And Sahib Plokhi, um, a historian based at Harvard, has written many books in recent years. Um, uh, but this particular one is a collection of essays which really allow you to delve into different periods of Ukrainian history. It also discusses sort of what does it mean to write Ukraine's history today It uh, goes into different um, time periods, the Cossacks, it mentions and discusses the Volodomor, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Chernobyl is is one of his, um, uh, the the nuclear catastrophe around Chernobyl is is one of his um, uh, areas of expertise, Ukraine in Europe. So it's really a collection of essays, which all together um, make, I think, for a very good background to what we are, what we're seeing today. My second second choice right away as well is perhaps a little um, more surprising. It's a book um, by a German author, journalist, um, Christoph Dresser, and the book is called A Hundred Children. Unfortunately, it's not been, I was looking, it hasn't been translated into English, which I can't understand at all. It was published in 2019 and it won in Germany the Youth Literature Prize in 2021. It's written for... Children, teenagers, but it's really uh, a great read for adults too. And what it does is it presents um, different sort of facts, um, statistical facts about children in today's world. So a starting point is 2 billion children under uh, 15 years uh, old. Um, and if we imagine those were 100 children living in one village, uh, how many of these hundred kids would um, experience war, live in a democracy, know Mickey Mouse, uh, have uh, own sneakers, but also um, how many of them are already married, how many will have school education? And I think it um, really brings home um, a lot of important facts, but also about, um, it's also about numerical literacy of um, children, but not only children. So I like this a lot.
1: Well, let's hope an eager translator and publisher is listening to this podcast. Today, I've been talking to Gwendolyn Sasser about Russia's war against Ukraine, published today by Polity. Gwen, thanks again for coming on.
2: Thank you.
1: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about
2: anywhere.